This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. About a little over a year and a half ago, I was uh, serving at another church, and um, I was in the office one day when a mutual friend of mine and the, the senior pastor, um, Pastor Mike, uh, came in. And he came in with a gift that he wanted to, to give to Mike, and since Mike wasn't there at the time, I went ahead and let him you know, back into his office and let him leave uh, the gift there. Well, I, before I went to go, uh, he offered to show me what it was that he was, he was giving to Mike. And, and so, uh, you know, I said yes. And, and so anyways, he, he unveiled a painting that he had done himself. His painting was set in a thick black frame done with strong contrasting uh, colors uh, with, uh, with a black background on it. And, and, and it was a picture of an African lion. I liked the guy, but uh, so he was showing me his painting. I don't remember how I schmoozed my way out of this, but, uh, but you know, I you know, didn't really care for it. And uh, I thought to myself, boy, I sure am glad he's not giving it to me so I don't have to hang it in my office. <laughs> and so anyways, but when Mike got back and saw the painting, he loved it. He loved this. He raved about it. In fact, he thought it was so great that he instructed the facilities director to go ahead and hang it on the wall right outside my office. <laughs> so every day when I left my work, I had to look at that lion. Just my luck. <laughs> and um, as uh, things would happen, I, I ended up well, working in a, a, a group uh, with this uh, same guy, the same gentleman, a group uh, that we had started for uh, people who were recently starting and returning to faith in Christ, a group called Essential Conversations. And so at the end of this time, though, in that group, um, we were at his home for a barbecue. And just as everybody was getting ready to exit, his, uh, his wife uh, stopped us and goes, oh, before you go, you've got to see his paintings. You've got to see, you know, his, his mini gallery." And you can only imagine what I was thinking. Um, but uh, we stepped into this side room, and I saw these 10 paintings all done in this Western um, theme and all with matching uh, frames and so forth. I, and they were pretty good. They were pretty good. I was wondering, you know, why didn't the other one turn out like this? And then I turned to the right, and I see another whole set of paintings, 10 paintings, all with the same black frame, all done in the strong, contrasting colors, all with the same African theme. And let me tell you, put together, it was impressive. As I looked, I, I saw the spot where I was guessing there was probably one painting missing of an African lion. And in that moment, I realized, I know nothing about art. Because <laughs> this was impressive. This was stunning. I also realized that that picture, you know, set apart alone, looked like an oddity. But when taken with the group, when set within its right context, it was stunning. It was absolutely stunning. 
And in life, some things work that same way. They seem odd when they're set apart, but when, they were, when they're understood within the right context, they're stunning. And this morning, I want to share with you about something that kind of follows along that same uh, metaphor, something that is set apart, um, something that is, uh, seems like an oddity alone, but absolutely stunning when understood in the right context. I'm talking about an issue in our faith called holiness. Holiness. Uh, the word means to be, in fact, set apart. Uh, it's the idea of goodness, purity, something with life set apart into something good. And these days, I think um, when the idea of holiness comes up with Christians and, 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 and non-Christians and so forth, uh, we oftentimes think about all of those awkward moments, right? those awkward moments that we experience uh, in faith when we have some kind of a disagreement about right and wrong, maybe in culture, what's good and what's evil. And it seems to bring, when we begin to talk about it, a certain level of uncomfortableness, right? Certain uncomfortableness seems to be attached to this topic, and maybe for good reason. But what do we do with it as Christians, right? You know, if we want to follow after God, we're going to be faced with the issue of being set apart, of being different, what the Bible calls being holy. And if you're not a follower of Christ um, this morning, you know, you might at least walk out of this message with an understanding of why it seems to matter so much to the Christians you know, maybe to your parents or maybe uh, to a friend. Because what we're going to see is an idea that helps us to answer the questions of what holiness looks like, where we struggle with it, and how we should respond in light of it. What it looks like, where we struggle with it, and how we should respond in light of it. I want to show it to you this morning from a place in our Father's Word um, that for most of us who uh, know our Bible, uh, like to avoid. Uh, we're going to be taking a look this morning at the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. I know, groan went up, you know, I just heard it. So um, when we look at this book, uh, Leviticus is obviously, it's not a book that is easy to just pick up and read and understand, right? It's, it's much like that painting. It seems odd to us until we were able to understand it in the right context, maybe. It just, but it just seems odd for the most part, right? It just seems weird. But our struggle with Leviticus doesn't end there, because beyond the book's uh, uh, oddity, it also has complexity. In fact, its complexity rivals the book of Revelation, right? I mean, this book, it must be deep, because we have a hard time understanding. It's deep, right? And it is. And this morning, I want us, though, to approach it. I want us to approach it with confidence, confidence that it's the Word of God, and that with His help, we can understand it. And in fact, what we're going to look at first is we're going to understand the framework, the context for Leviticus, because it actually does play a very crucial role in Scripture, and it offers us something very important when we consider holiness. In fact, Leviticus stands at the center of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. These first five books, when we kind of examine them from a 20,000-foot view, uh, we can see that these books are arranged in what scholars would call a chiastic pattern. 
right? It's a pattern where uh, things mirror each other with the most important point, or, you know, you might, you might call it the moral of the story, uh, set in the middle of it. And uh, this isn't, you know, obviously maybe how we think in Western culture, okay? But this is uh, something that was common in ancient Near Eastern cultures to write and to think this way. And so what we have here then is the book of Genesis that we went through in the fall, right? We have the book of Genesis mirroring the book of Deuteronomy. And we have the book of Exodus that we just finished mirroring the book of Numbers in some very purposeful ways. And smack dab in the middle of that is the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. And so it plays a key role. Inside, though, as we look at the last struggle that we have with Leviticus, is oftentimes it's not just confusing for any old reason, uh, maybe just from the side from the fact that it's 3,500 years old from us and, and we don't really do things oftentimes most of the way they, they would do things back then. Aside from that complexity, it's also complex because Leviticus itself is written in a chiastic pattern. The first 15 chapters, as Michael Moroles and, and D.A. Carson and others would point out, uh, deal with approaching God into atonement. And the last 10 chapters deal with um, uh, communing with God in holiness. And what we have then with Leviticus is chapter 16 set smack dab right in the middle, right in the center of the book as these two pieces kiss. And what's even more amazing than all of that is that as we examine chapter 16, you guessed it, it also has a chiastic pattern as the first half of the chapter mirrors the second half of the chapter with verses 16 to 20 standing at its center. Friends, the intricate complexity of that is astounding, isn't it? It's astounding. As a friend of mine likes to say, the Bible is such a book that man wouldn't write if they could and couldn't write if they would. We don't want to write this kind of a book, nor could we. It's utterly amazing when it's understood within the context of what's being written. Now, I only have, though, for all of this, one Sunday to speak to you on the book of Leviticus. So, obviously, you know, buckle down. We're going to be here a couple hours. You know, just cancel your lunch appointment. No, I'm kidding. Uh, what we are going to do is we're going to turn our attention, we're going to focus on chapter 16 of Leviticus. And as we turn there, I want us to begin thinking and putting ourselves into the mindset of an ancient Israelite that would have been hearing this for the very first time. If you were uh, approaching this book, you would have been somebody who would have been redeemed by God, right, through the book of Exodus, as we just finished covering. God would have done all these amazing things, brought you out of that, and he's brought you to Mount Sinai specifically. And since you got there, some crazy things have been happening, right? The biggest one of all is that God has moved in, right? He has actually taken up residence in a tent in the middle of this camp. He's your new neighbor. And what we see happening is that there's this expectation that the people of Israel, who up until now have only known slavery, would now start living as the people of God. And the consequence for not living as the people of God, uh, the consequence for all sin of death, hasn't changed. 
And so for an Israelite who was receiving the book of Leviticus for the first time, it would have come as a welcome relief, not a weight. In fact, as we begin to approach holiness, that's going to be important for us to tuck away. That holiness is a relief, not a weight. A relief, not a weight. And what's happening here as they're receiving this book of instruction about how you're supposed to live with the presence of God as a people who have been set apart, who have been made holy, who are different, is that they begin to experience something. They begin to experience restoration with God. In fact, the book of Exodus, it ends in chapter 40 with God speaking to Moses, and Moses can't even enter the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, 35, it says that God spoke to Moses from the tabernacle, and he was outside of it. And then we pick things up in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, we find that God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. And what stands smack dab in the middle of that is Leviticus, about how God is going to, through holiness, bring people back into his presence. It's restoration. It's restoration. That's what Leviticus is about. It's God restoring people back into his presence. It's a slight glimmer of Eden. It's a slight glimmer of the new heavens and the new earth as man is brought back into God's presence. That's our mindset as we approach Leviticus 16, verse 1, and examine holiness. Verse 1 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near to the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, so this is important, right? This is important. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, which I would want this message if I was Aaron, tell him not to come any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. So what is happening here? <laughs> well, God's going to explain following here how to enter his presence correctly, appropriately, in holiness. Two of Aaron's sons in chapter 10 of Leviticus have already been struck down because they just were doing their own thing. They just willy-nilly came into God's presence. They didn't wait on his instruction. They didn't wait on his leading. They were doing their own thing. And in verses 3 to 5 that follow this section, Aaron is told what he needs to go get what he's going to need in terms of clothes and sacrifices in order to be able to come before God in the place that's called the Holy of Holies. Okay, so within the tabernacle, there's a veil separating a, a, a special spot where Aaron would come uh, before the mercy seat or before the place of atonement, and Aaron would represent the people to God. And so then we pick things up in verse 6. It says this, Aaron shall offer the bowl as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the en entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one goat for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, or as I think would be best translated, uh, scapegoat. Uh, the different options, scapegoat. As meaning goat, zel meaning scape or away. And so we have a scapegoat here. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which fell for Azazel, or the scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. 
it may, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel, to being the scapegoat. Well, let me pause here for a moment and address the issue that I'm sure many of us um, are having on our mind, which is, what is up with all of these sacrifices? I mean, what kind of like cultic, you know, what, what is this and, and this blood and the sacrifices and these goats? And what, what is going on with this? Right? Some of us may be even vegetarians within the great state of Wisconsin, you know, where hunting is the national sport here. Right? You know, it's, I get it. We're wondering, what's going on with this? <laughs> well, to put simply, right here, Jesus hadn't come yet. Jesus hadn't come yet. And so uh, man is still sinning, and God has uh, put forward uh, that the punishment for sin is death. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, we read that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So before Jesus comes, God had given the people of Israel a way of dealing with their sin by shedding the blood of an animal and by faith, trusting God for the forgiveness. And this is what is eventually then fulfilled in Christ's coming, in Christ's death and his sacrifice for sin. That's what all these seemingly odd ritual sacrifices are about. We just have to understand them within the right context. And so here then, we have careful instructions for how Aaron is to be pure coming before the Lord, and how the people of Israel, they're going to be pure coming before the Lord. And what we see then at every single level is going throughout the camp, from the camp to the tent to the holy of the holies, is purity, holiness. God's setting everything apart. At every level, it's going to be holy, purified from sin, every, from everything unclean, everything sinful is going to be sent outside of God's presence through the scapegoat. And what happens next is that Aaron actually does what he's been told to do. He presents the sacrifices. He creates this thin veil of smoke between him and God, not so that God can't see him, but so that he doesn't look at God. And then we have a sacrifice for the people, and he sprinkles his some of the blood of his sacrifice and the people's sacrifice before the veil and behind the veil and be to the left of the altar and so forth, this place of atonement we commonly call the mercy seat. And we pick things up in verse 16. It says, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, because the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. And he has made atonement for himself and his house and all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and he shall put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of it on his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from all uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has ma made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness, the guy who's right there. The goat shall bear all iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So, these actions 
left the people set apart. It left them holy. That the high priest, as he would come in and he would bring the blood of the sacrifice and the people's sacrifice for all of their sins, that all of their sin would be paid for in the very presence of God. So you can almost then picture in your mind this watershed effect running throughout the entire camp of holiness, that everything from the holiest place to the furthest edges of God's people would be made completely holy. Amazing. And from this point, the text is simply going to keep walking them back out of God's presence and leaving every degree of the Israelite camp pure, holy, complete. All their sins, having been paid for, sent running out of God's presence and from his people. And as a result of this, it says that they have been atoned for. Now, what does this mean? What does this word mean? This is a this seemingly odd ritual that's at the heart of Leviticus deals with this atonement. But what does it mean to be atoned for? Seems like an appropriate question. What does it mean? Well, it means to be made one with God. It means to be at one right? It's a being made one with God. So that as a result of the people's sins having been paid for, that they are done away with, that the sin is gone, and that they can again come and live in the holiness with God. They can live in his presence. Again, the point of the book is restoration, being restored, the restoration of God and his people. And that's what we too get to take out of this book this morning. That's what, that's what the point is for us this morning. So catch this. We were set apart to be with God. We have been set apart as followers of Christ. We have been set apart to be with God. Friends, all of this foreshadowing business, all of this ritual, all of this sacrifice, all of this stuff, it is now what Christ has brought into our hearts once and for all. The whole purpose of all of this is that God has set us apart to be with him. The Israelites didn't earn it, neither can we, right? In fact, uh, if you look at the process here, the people, they're spectators, right? They're spectators. They're not involved, right? That's purposeful because it is God who is setting them apart to be in his presence, And so for 1,500 years, Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, has this foreshadowing, everything looking forward to Jesus. All of it pointing to the fulfillment that God is going to do through Christ. Where Jesus now brings them into the next level of this fulfillment, us into the next level of this fulfillment, and bringing man back into God's presence that now Christ, as our better high priest, as our perfect sacrifice, as Hebrews 9 puts it, has accomplished it once and for all, no repeats necessary, nothing, that the punishment of sin was put on him, and that he took his own blood and sprinkled it before the altar as a great high priest. And he, as our scapegoat, took and bore all of our sins out of the camp. He made atonement for all who would call on his name so that we could be one with God again. 
And in doing so, you know, he, he opens up the barriers. He takes down, right, the, the things that have been put in the way. In fact, he literally takes down the curtain. If you look at the Gospels, when Christ dies on the cross, the veil that separated this holies of holy place is torn in two. That man who had been set apart by God himself may enter into his presence. That if we have been made holy, we can too enter into his presence. That and experience it. As, as Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 23 says, Therefore, brothers or sisters, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's what this is all about, that we have been set apart to be with God. That's why holiness it's not a weight. It's a relief. It's a relief. And when seen in the context of that, it's meant to be stunning. It's worth all those awkward moments, those feelings like an oddity. So let's look at what, what does this look like then in real life, right? What does this look like? Well, we can say that two things about this, that holiness is both positional and practical. We look at the text of Leviticus 16, it's pretty clear that we're talking about positional holiness. That's what's in focus here. Positional holiness is what, simply put, it's what Jesus does for me. And that's at the heart of holiness. That's at the heart of the gospel. That without any effort to earn or maintain my salvation, God has set me apart to be with him. That's a relief, isn't it? That's a relief. The second part of holiness is a relief as well. And it's called practical holiness, right? Um, as we look at the text, practical holiness is what flows from either side of Leviticus 16. As God teaches the Israelites how to live in his camp, in his community, in his presence. Now, we're not under the law, right? Well, we won't be doing any ritual sacrifice out back afterwards, just in case you're curious, right? It won't be happening, right? There's no, we're not under this, this ceremonial. We're not under, you know, this cleanliness offerings. We're, we are not under that. We're not under the law because it all looked forward to Christ is what has been fulfilled. So what does practical holy living mean for us? What does it mean for us? Because we're still called to it, right? So 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16 says, but he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct because it is written in quoting here from Leviticus, be holy for I am what? holy, right? Holy. Holiness is still called for. And so what does it mean to be set apart with God in life? What does that look like? Well, it looks like nothing short of a brand new life, both inside and out. You can, uh, you can see this example in marriage, right? You can see this example in marriage. My wife Adele and I, we, we dated uh, long distance uh, for quite some time, uh, in fact, the majority of our relationship before getting married, which means it counts twice as long. And um, so all the dating couples can attest to, right? <laughs> and so 
uh, when we finally were dating together again, we were in Chicago. We were working both and, you know, going to school full time, so we hardly ever saw each other. And so when we finally did get married, after two and a half years of dating and engagement, which my wife would tell you is way too long, <laughs> we were just thrilled to finally be together. <laughs> we were just happy to be together. And in marriage, biblically speaking, we have been set apart from everyone else. Everyone else we've been set apart, separated from, that it's just her and I. Not her and her mom, her and her dad, right? Not me and my mom, not me and my dad. Just her and I, completely separate with each other forever. And I gotta tell you, the number one feeling I remember experiencing after getting married was just what a relief it was. That we were finally together forever. And that relief is what allowed our relationship to blossom as a result. And practically speaking, marriage transformed everything about my life, right? Everything, you know, so much of my life was just a brand new lifestyle as a result. Same is true in our relationship with God. He makes us holy to be with him forever, no matter what. And the relief of that holiness is to make our relationship with him blossom as that holiness offers us an amazing gift of being set apart, secure in him, in a brand new lifestyle. That's what it looks like. But it's right here that I believe our struggle really picks up. I think we have some very genuine struggles with holiness post this point. What is our struggle with holiness? Well, our struggle with holiness really centers on the last two words of this sentence, the being with God part. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I think many of us are clueless as to how to proceed in this struggle with holiness. Don't get me wrong. We may look like very good moral Christians, but maybe it's like 2 Timothy 3, 5, having the appearance of godliness without the power of God. That we know we're called to live this holy life, but frankly, not really sure how God fits into it, practically. Let me give you three examples of the struggle that we have today. First, our struggle is with compromised motives with holiness. Compromised motives. Let me explain it this way. If you look back at 2017, broadly speaking, one of the most important, one of the most you know, thematic things that we saw was the hashtag MeToo campaign, right? A desire to right the wrongs of sexual abuse, to bring justice to people, whether they were people in power or wherever, right? That was a good desire. That's a good thing. We want to see that wrong righted. But if you also look at our culture and you look at what was the top shows, the top movies that we watched in 2017, let me tell you, they don't line up. In fact, in many ways, they are the exact Opposite. You look at 2017 and we see that one of the top movies in America was Fifty Shades Darker, pulling in over a hundred million dollars. A movie that was the exact antithesis of that whole hashtag me too thing that we were all supposed to be for. We have compromised motives because the truth is we want just enough holiness to fix our problems. We want just enough holiness to fix our problems. That's our motivation when it comes to being set apart. We don't want to get carried away with holiness. So if holiness doesn't fix something that I see as a problem, I'm not interested. 
That's how we approach it. That's our first struggle with it. Secondly, a second example of our struggle with holiness is that we pursue holiness for the sake of holiness. It's like that old Christmas line, you know, goodness for goodness sake. That's where we're at. It doesn't result in freedom. It results in rule keeping because it's about the rules that those become more and more important, and then our being with God becomes less and less important. And so we start putting up more and more safeguards to keep us from sin. Now, the proverbial safeguard or guardrail to keep us from sin, that's a good thing, right? In and of itself, that's a good thing. But when our goal of holiness becomes avoiding or managing sin, then we always end up with a real problem. Take the example with uh, drunkenness, for example, right? Uh, Many people have looked at the command to not get drunk in Scripture and decided to not drink altogether. That's fine, right? In fact, that's a great choice for them. But when that person begins to confuse drinking at all for sin, they've crossed over the line into legalism, into legalism, having forgotten the point of why holiness matters. Last example our struggle with holiness, we make the outside of life the aim of our holiness. We make the outside of life the aim of our holiness. Friends, when Jesus came, he rebuked the Pharisees, and he addressed them on each of these issues. He calls them hypocrites for having compromised holiness with greed. He calls them legalistic for insisting that the people keep all these extra rules, rules that God did not insist on the people keeping. And they did it without lifting a single finger to make their lives easier. And he also rebukes them for being whitewashed tombs, shiny on the outside, but dead on the inside, because it is easier to fix our problems on the outside than to address the issues of our heart. That's where we're at. Yet holiness needs and to begin with both our hearts, both positionally and practically. This is our struggle, isn't it? isn't it? This is where we're at. How do we respond to it? If our struggle is being hypocritical, legalistic, and outward fakes, where do we start? Because all of this struggle needs a response. It needs a grace-centered, God-sized response. It needs a response of holiness. What we see in Scripture is as the writer of Hebrews looks at Leviticus chapter 16, he responds with saying that we are to be set apart with God. If that's happened, then we need to draw near to God with a true heart, unwavering from our hope, stirring up love and good works, and continuing to meet together. That means that our need is to first address our hearts before our hands. So that when we respond to sin and we struggle with holiness, we struggle with temptations, when we struggle with our failures, that we see it with fresh eyes. That when it comes to compromised holiness, what we need to apply is what A.W. Tozer called the pen and paper method. That he simply got out the scriptures, turned to the gospels, and began writing down what was wrong with him. That's where we need to begin. If our holiness is compromised, if we want to, you know, make it all about what everybody else has done wrong and what we aren't listening to and so on and so forth, we need to begin with God's word speaking to us and pointing out where is it in my life 
that have compromised holiness. Secondly, if we're struggling with a legalistic view of holiness, we need to repent of setting a standard of man above God's. That's where we need to repent of. Finally, if we're struggling with fake holiness, of being shiny on the outside, but dead on the inside, then we need to begin receiving the atoning work of Christ in a fresh way, not in terms of being saved all over again, but in terms of applying it. Friends, we've been given the Holy Spirit of God that for the exact moment when you are tempted in anger, tempted with rage, tempted to lust, that we have an advocate, that we, as the writer of Hebrews says, that we can come before the throne of grace with confidence. That's what we need in those moments. It's not some kind of self-discipline, fix-it-yourself thing. We have been given the Holy Spirit of God that to turn to him in our hearts and first address those issues. That can simply look like praying and saying, Jesus, Lord, I need you to take my sexuality. I need you to take my anger. I consecrate it. I give it back to you. Lord, I know that you have made me holy. You have atoned. You have conquered sin. Restore me, right? We need to bring that work to our heart before our hands so that as we do that, we experience grace, mercy, that our life is built on the love of God, on his holiness, rather than on our effort, so that we can know, even in those awkward, difficult moments, those struggles of holiness, where we feel like an oddity, that we have been set apart to be with God, that that is the context that matters, and that our life will have been built on the foundation of God himself, rather than on our own efforts, or on our own goodness, or anything else, so that we can stand and say, there I look, and I see him there, Christ, the one who's made an end to all my sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, upward we look. Lord, we see you there. You have paid the price. You have written our names on the palm of your hands. And so, Lord, we invite your holiness to be at work in our hearts. Lord, we need it. We are broken. We don't have this figured out. We need you. Holy Spirit, come. Will you mend and restore and heal? Will you begin the work of our hearts to encourage us afresh so that we can know that you are with us and you have not let us fall, but instead, as your word said, you who promised will be faithful. And so, Lord, we trust you. We trust your faithfulness. And we love you. Amen.